Okay, so imagine that you are the best food critic ever. Some of you, maybe that's not much of a stretch. Some of you, maybe that's an incredible stretch. So no one's better than assessing food than you. Now imagine someone knows this, walks up to you, hands you a plain hot dog and asks, are you able to comment on this? Obviously, you have the competency to handle the most basic kind of food if you are the best at assessing all food. And the thing is, in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8, Paul made a similar point by rebuking the Corinthians for throwing their disputes before secular authorities when they should be able to handle these things themselves. And so this passage follows on Paul's previous discussion of church discipline in chapter 5. And obviously it's a related topic, somewhat distinct within this section of chapters 1 to 6 on the crisis of authority, but still related. So although the last chapter was about sexual immorality, and this one, this issue seems to be about being defrauded, as verse 7 points to us, the basic problem seems to be the same. They needed church discipline. In the previous case, they had refused to enact discipline when needed. And here, they handed discipline too quickly over to secular authorities. And I realize that there are some real complexities that come out of this really fast when we try to think practically. But the main point, I think, is clear that it is most shameful to have Christians sinning against one another and unable to resolve it. It is most shameful to have Christians sinning against one another and unable to resolve it. And we might add... In light of this morning, because God is holy. We're going to think about that in three points. Adjudication, administration, and application. So, adjudication. So, the situation that Paul addressed here was that one member, apparently, of this congregation was taking another member to court rather than first trying to settle this matter within the church. Verse 7, if you'll... Sorry, verse verse 1, if you'll read it with me. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So the, the first problem that rises out of Paul's handling of this matter is the practicalities of transposing this this situation of the first century into our modern time while being faithful to the principles here and accounting for some real and serious changes in the legal systems. So the the principle that we will address eventually is how we as Christians are to be faithful today to Paul's instructions to handle particular matters within the church rather than dragging each other to court. So that's the problem raised by verse 1. But... It's not actually hashed out until verses 4 to 8. So the practical problems are about how to deal with this uh, in verses 1 and then 4 to 8. And the other problem with us, not with the text, but with us understanding it. The other problem is dealing with the theological aspects 
of last, the last day judgment in verses 2 and 3. So, here's what's going on. Verses 2 and 3 explain why believers should handle some matters within the church rather than going to secular courts. So we're going to handle these verses and the theological issues about the last day judgment before turning back to apply this text and the practicality. So look at verses 2 and 3. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then? Matters pertaining to this life. So, this is where the, the food expert judging the hot dog becomes relevant. The hot dog is below the ability of the expert because he's appointed to the highest task. And that's not to say hot dogs are unimportant, but they take less skill, right, than sophisticated food assessments. And the point is that if Christians will take part in judging the creation, the most important event of all history that has eternal ramifications for everyone, then certainly they are qualified to deal with issues about this life within the church themselves. So that establishes the function of Paul's argument to show that Christians should be able to handle disputes amongst ourselves without immediately running to the secular courts. That's the point within this text. But I think to do justice here, we need to think about the theology here in reconciling this passage with others about the last judgment. Because if we don't think carefully, we might get tripped up here. So for example, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due for what he has already done in the body, whether good or evil. So do you see, in our passage, we participate with Christ in helping judge the earth, and here, everyone appears before the judgment seat. Romans fourteen ten to 12 Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So how do we knit these things together? So I think we can draw them together by considering a pattern within Scripture, if we think about it this way, of Resurrection, judgment, glorification. Okay? Resurrection, judgment, glorification. And the issue is, how far apart do we pull 
resurrection and judgment and glorification. How, how intertwined are these? So Paul explained the resurrection of believers in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Hear it? Raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. So, for believers, our resurrection will raise us in, in, changed, imperishable, incorruptible, glorified bodies. Which then already declare what our standing for eternity will be. You see that? You, when you come out of the grave, you are already noticeably different from unbelievers. Before any event of judgment takes place, the verdict is already clear that the justified are resurrected in glorified bodies, in bodies perfectly conformed to that of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, this, this is important, because this is, this is actually a thing. This differs from books from the intertestamental period. So a book like Second Baruch, you, I don't, I'm not recommending that you go read it, just telling you it's there, that makes even believers wait to receive their eternal bodies until a judgment is rendered. Paul, in contrast, affirms that the resurrection itself distinguishes believers with changed bodies from unbelievers who will be raised with perishable bodies fit for eternal destruction. The resurrection. So if we're thinking about that pattern of resurrection, judgment, glorification for believers, it's all the same. The resurrection itself pronounces judgment. Now, I know I have beat this drum before, and I'm going to do it again, and probably for as long as you let me be your assistant minister. But this excludes any sort of notion of future final second justification. If you're justified, it's done. It's a finished thing, definitive. That's the end. You stand right. You are a citizen of heaven forever. So we should not think of any kind of notion of God playing a video of your sins before creation before he announces the verdict. God raises you with a glorified body at Christ's very return. Now how do we how do we tie this right into our passage? Paul explained this process of Christ's return, our resurrection in glorified bodies, then followed by believers helping render judgment upon the rest of humanity in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-17. I'm sure that you all have a perfect understanding of this passage since we have recently worked through it in the evenings. But in case you don't remember it, For this we declare to you 
by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Christ comes back. People are raised. The believers are raised glorified. Those who are alive at his return are glorified. And then join Christ in judging the world. And the traditional reading of 1 Corinthians 6.3 is that believers also help render judgment upon fallen angels. As Jesus said in Matthew 25, for things to intertwine, dovetail together, morning and evening sermons, 25.41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Christ will make and has made us judges for eternal matters. And so we need to learn wisdom, how to practice good adjudication now for our churches. And that brings us to our second point, administration. So, okay, having handled... Pretty weighty, I think, hefty theological matters about the final judgment. We need to think through the practicalities of transposing this text's principles into modern life. So in verse 4, Paul indicated that if believers will handle eternal cases, they shouldn't run to take world, earthly cases before, before worldly courts. And he wrote, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? They should be competent to sort these things out themselves. So whereas in chapter 4, verse 14, Paul explicitly said the things that he had written, he did not write to shame them. In chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, he did. They should be ashamed that no one is wise enough to settle disputes. So they instead drag their problems before sports to the church's embarrassment. Okay, so some have used this passage to say Christians should never involve secular courts but handle everything in the church. And that gets really complex, though. And there are a couple of reasons, a couple of factors we need to consider. First, first century religious bodies like Judaism had the right to judge for themselves non-criminal cases. So if we think about Jesus' own trial. That is why his initial trial took place before the Sanhedrin. 
And they had to convince Pilate that Jesus' case was about rebellion so that he would intervene to judge what they then made into a criminal case. See that? So secular authorities judged criminal cases, but religious bodies could judge the less serious non-criminal cases. So Paul then likely drew upon Deuteronomy 1, 9 to 18, and there are related texts, but that's a prominent one, where God instructed his people to appoint leaders to handle disputes and discipline issues, and he applied it to the church, which was then still legally considered a subset of Judaism that had to write, had the right to judge this sort of case for itself. So, we do see, if you look really close in verse 2, that Paul specified that these issues applied to trivial cases, which we might think is to distinguish them from the eternal issues of judging the world, but actually, scholars make a good case that this is to distinguish trivial cases from criminal cases. So, that, those considerations give an important point to think about, to shape how we should think about what issues we handle as the church. We don't have the right in our day and age to make legal pronouncements. So, we have to restrain ourselves to speaking with only moral and churchly Authority. And the text made clear that the church was never given authority over criminal issues. So, we might be able to handle uh, issues, or especially counsel within issues, when like somebody borrows money from each other at an informal level. As this passage was clearly about related issues of someone being defrauded. But... We're not capable of handling issues of like corporate embezzlement, even if the CEO and all the employees are Christians. We can still counsel within these situations, but not legally decide anything in a binding way. We can't issue punishments. We can't make decisions that issue retribution. So I think that's... One of the, if you're after a list of how this works out specifically, I'm going to disappoint you because this is a lot about using wisdom in the Christian life. And this, yeah, another big factor here is this passage has also been used to prevent wives or children from taking action in domestic abuse cases. Pointing to verse 7, where should we not rather suffer wrong? Now, here's an important thing. We should certainly, 100%, definitely want reconciliation, restoration, and true repentance that manifests itself in genuinely changed behavior so that things can be brought back together, helped, in even that sort of situation. But... 
Actual domestic abuse is a criminal offense punishable by law. So while we can counsel towards restoration in situations like that, the text does not give us right to render legally binding judgments. And I was reading, interesting, in a book not related to this text, but providentially, Calvin himself dragged plenty of people guilty of domestic abuse before the Genevan consistory 400 years ago, which I think is fascinating. And this becomes really relevant, though. I have not heard as much of it here, thankfully, but we as a congregation, because we want to emulate God's holiness, care about this sort of thing. In America, several really big churches have gotten in trouble for covering up child abuse of various kinds in their own church as if this text vindicates that decision to hide sin. But not only are we not to protect criminal offenders in the church in that way, moreover, I think it is really clear, and I really want you to hear me on this, because I think this is so fundamental. Nothing in this text says anything about covering up sin. You see that? It is actually specifically about dealing with sin and how we're supposed to take care of it. It does not say, let sin go, as some what seem like godless people obsessed with power, calling them, even calling themselves ministers have done. It says, handle sin. It does not belong in the church. So you deal with it. And we can remember, because God is holy, The main thrust of this passage is deal with sin, but appropriately. If people refuse to repent, the previous chapter made clear that we put them out of the church. So we should try to handle as many things as we can in the church. Work it out amongst ourselves, but in cases where people refuse to repent, eventually they're no longer a brother. And the principles here apply less directly at that point. The ultimate issue, ultimate problem, though, was not even how the Corinthians handled these issues, but that the issues were there. Verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And that should be crippling to the soul that might be involved. And it should be a profound warning to the rest of us before 
we enter to a combative posture with other Christians. We should be willing to suffer some wrong because we know the reality of being forgiven ourselves. We should be ready to turn the other cheek. We should even give up some legal intervention. Our rights to it, even if it's acceptable within whatever's happening, in favor of reconciliation within the church as much as it is possible. Even more. Even more. Right? So, so there we're, we're still in the weeds of we've already done wrong. What do we do? But even more than that, thinking through what can I do if that happens, even more, we should commit to doing right, doing good to brothers and sisters in Christ. That should be the default. We too easily insist on our own way. We think that what we deserve is foremost. And here we likely need not be reminded that what we deserve foremost is God's wrath. So we should give up what we think we deserve. Paul did not appeal... or so, so, right, if we think about the biography of the Apostle Paul, Paul did appeal to Roman authorities for relief from his hardship. So he appealed to the authorities for relief from hardship, but he never appealed to them in retribution against those who had wronged him. Right? And we should likely take a similar approach. We may need help in getting relief, and we should be incredibly slow in seeking retribution. We should long to have peace in the church, and as long as the as we as the church should get involved, if there are real problems, we should work to restore people. We may need, there are times, and we have to admit, we may need to appeal to authorities to give us relief if things are criminal or particularly bad, but we should not foremost insist on every right that we have every time We can use it. And here's the thing. Sometimes I fear that Christians run to civil authorities really fast because they know they'll get a higher payout or easier hearings in secular courts than in the church court that will likely in some way call everybody to repent. And that shouldn't characterize us. So the administration of these principles is difficult and complex, and it just takes a lot of wisdom. That brings us to consider our final point, application. So it remains to think about why these points are so important. And I've got three applications for you. So first, the reputation of Christ is at stake. He is the second person of the Holy Godhead. And His people are meant to be conformed more and more to His image. This is about God's holiness and our call to reflect Him. 
It is a defeat in the first place if brother turns against brother because we are supposed to be changed people. If we wrong one another, then we should repent and we should forgive. We don't seek revenge and we don't withdraw from church life in any capacity just because we feel wronged. We work it out. We're Christians. Then that's the end. We repent and we forgive. End of story. As much as possible. We should give grace. And we should also work to treat each other well. I think that's something that's easy for us to forget. I haven't wronged somebody. Maybe not. Have we worked to treat each other well? And that applies to every area of life. And those that precede the need for legal counsel. Doesn't that make sense? If we work to treat each other well, we're never going to need legal counsel. Right? So, be generous to each other and don't defraud each other. In our marriages, seek the other person's good more than yours, and you'll hardly ever find yourself deficient to this capacity. Even for our singles, right? That's an easy to jump to in marriage. For our singles, think, think long and hard about how to treat each other well so that people's feelings don't get hurt. Do good to one another. Good to one another. Second, these issues are important because Christ is the defender of the weak. We have the example in Luke 18 of the typical first century judge who ignored pleas for help from the widow who needed justice. Eventually he gave in because she beat down his door, but he wanted to ignore her and the church isn't supposed to be like that. The church is supposed to protect those who need justice. So if people come to us for help, we should do our best to help. We should speak for people who hurt. We should love the good and the just. Not in terms of people, but in terms of good things and just things. And take a stand that... No one is disadvantaged because of another's actions in our midst. Third, these things reflect the character of Christ. Because we are called to address sin. This passage as we've already mentioned, is the opposite of covering up our misdeeds, but about exposing them to deal with them. We do not pretend that we are not sinners, but we actively seek repentance, grace, and restoration. And that shows us Christ's character because... 
He is the Savior who ultimately dealt with sin. He is the Son of God who was willing, even though he should not have, he was willing to suffer wrong so that he might do good to others. And we are those who deserved his death because we are sinners. We break God's law and rebel against him. But Christ died to pay for our sins. Even though we are indeed called to be changed people, if we do sin, we have an advocate in heaven who will stand to plead our case. If your list of offenses was presented to God's courtroom, God would simply say, I can't read this. Someone has poured blood on it. And it is our Savior's blood who would receive you now by faith. First time a million and cleanse you from all of your sins. So let's go to him now. Father God, we do rejoice that whatever our failings, we have our Savior who addressed sin on our behalf, who became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And we pray that we would flee to him for shelter. We know that he will come back to judge the world. But we know that he will raise us glorified and he will even bring us to his side to participate in judgment with him. We rejoice that we can have such confidence because of what Christ has done for us. There is no fear to be had. And because of that, help us to love one another fearlessly, even sacrificially, that we might never fall in this trap of prosecuting one another. We, we realize that these are extreme things for people to drag each other to court, and yet we pray that you would prevent it from ever happening, but we also pray at such a smaller level that you would protect this congregation even from dispute that there would be no divisions that could possibly lead sort of thing we ask that because christ has bought a united body one that should reflect his holiness and be more and more conformed to his image and so we ask because you have rescued us in christ that you would make us look more like him. And we ask that you would send us out full of hope, not burdened, full of hope, excited that you will fill us with your spirit to do whatever task you might call us to do. We do ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.